Welcome to the Layman's Guide to the Lectionary with your host, Pastor Steve Andrews. This weekend, as the church gathers together for worship, we celebrate the highest point in the entire year. We celebrate Easter, the day of Christ's resurrection from the dead. Now, it is possible as you gather that you will have different readings than the one I include today. Um, So, Easter day are the services that the readings that we're going with in the the podcast today. There's also Easter Vigil, there's Easter Sunrise, um, there's just different options to choose from. It's possible, uh, as time goes on here, that I'll eventually come back and do those other ones as well. But for this weekend, uh, we're going to again do the Easter Day readings for Year B, the Resurrection of Our Lord. And that means the Old Testament from Isaiah chapter 25, verses 6 through 9. It's true, we've already done this reading in the podcast together. We're going to do it again and do a little bit more of a focus on Holy Week. And then 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 1 through 11 is the epistle text. And the gospel reading is Mark chapter 16, verses 1 through 8. So as we start, read the Old Testament reading for you here. Isaiah 25, verses 6 through 9. On this mountain... Yahweh of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well-refined. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord Yahweh will wipe away tears from all faces, and the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth. For Yahweh has spoken. It will be said on that day, Behold, this is our God. We have waited for him, that he might save us. This is Yahweh. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. This is an Old Testament prophecy of the coming Messiah and the work that the Messiah would do for us. And we can see how this text very specifically points us to Holy Week. And that's why we're we're going ahead and studying it again. It did show up, as I mentioned in the lectionary, the three-year system before. Um, Let me double-check here. That was Isaiah 25. It was back in the fall of year A. So it was October 7, 2020. We had that reading for the the 19th Sunday after Pentecost, actually more properly called Proper 23. So it's, what, six months ago? So it hasn't been too long since we last read this text in our churches together. But as we look at it, again, you can see why they would place it here. Um, We just celebrated Maundy Thursday together in our churches, and this text points us to Maundy Thursday very clearly. On this mountain, it's a reference to Zion, Mount Zion, which is Jerusalem, uh, which is going to be the location where all the events of Holy Week take place, right? As Jesus comes into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, riding on the donkey for the triumphal entry, as he then spends Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday teaching in the temple, and then Thursday we have the, the events of 
of the, the meal, the Passover meal together as Jesus institutes the Lord's Supper. They head out to the Garden of Gethsemane, which is just two miles east of the city of Jerusalem, where Jesus will be arrested. He's then taken back into the city to the, the high priest's house, Caiaphas's house, for trial. Uh, he goes through several trials before Caiaphas and uh, also before Pilate and Herod. And then he's brought for punishment. Punishment for crimes he never committed, but that we did. And then he goes to the cross for the crucifixion, which is going to be just outside the city gate in Jerusalem. And then he's buried um, there as well before he rises from the dead on Sunday morning. Or maybe very, very, very late Saturday night. The Bible doesn't specify, just sometime on that third day, which would have begun at sundown on Saturday. Sometime in that day, Jesus rose from the dead. And we know it happens before the women head out to the tomb very early in the morning, as we're going to see in our gospel reading together. So everything of Holy Week happening there in that city of Jerusalem on this mountain. Now, what is Isaiah talking about? What's this prophecy getting at happening on this mountain? Well, let's look at that specifically. So, Yahweh of hosts, the Lord of hosts, as your English Bible puts it, Yahweh of armies would probably be the best way to translate the Hebrew. So you've got the divine name, who God is, and then he is, he is the, the head of angel armies. And what's he going to do? He's going to make a feast. This is the great king of heaven and earth, and he's making a feast, and he's making it for who? For all peoples. Now that people word in the Hebrew is am, which is the Hebrew word for people, uh, ethnic group, nation, that kind of thing. Um, this would be a place that the, the Christian might go to make the argument, the case that Jesus' death was unlimited, in scope, it was not just for the elect, but that it was indeed for all peoples, all nations. The gospel is going to be proclaimed to all nations, to all peoples. And so what is he making for all nations in this prophecy? A feast. And not just any feast either. It's a feast the best of the best. Rich food full of marrow. Uh, it's going to get repeated twice, right? Uh, well, I guess repeated once. Uh, it's marrow, not bone marrow, but another definition is the choicest of the food. I mean, this is the best of the best, the best stuff money can buy. Your wine is then well-aged, well-refined. Again, the best of the best, the best that you could buy. Uh, and this, this feast is twofold when it's referent, actually. Again, we're talking about this in the context of Holy Week, so don't miss the feast you just celebrated together on Maundy Thursday, and that perhaps you're going to celebrate together here on Easter. I don't know of any churches that celebrate the Lord's Supper together on Good Friday, at least not off the top of my head. Um, I suppose some could, but Maundy Thursday's institution of the Lord's Supper is what we want to have in mind first. Now, again, this is twofold, but let's look at it from the Lord's Supper perspective first. I mean, rich food, well-aged wine. We talk about bread and wine in the Lord's Supper. But we know 
that that bread and that wine is so much more than just ordinary bread and wine because when it is attached to the word, the instruction of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, it is now somehow, and that's beyond our understanding, it is now somehow more than simply bread, more than simply wine. It is the very body and blood of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. This is my body. This is my blood. the best of the best, the best money could buy, and guess what? You can't buy this. That strikes up uh, connection to Isaiah 55. I should have looked that one up, but I wasn't thinking about it. So here, let me turn to Isaiah 55 in my Bible real quick. I'm just thinking of the words of this, this very same prophet as he's going to invite us to the feast. So Isaiah 55 starts with these words. Come. Everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and he who has no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread, and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me, and eat what is good, and delight yourselves in rich food. Hear, sorry, incline your ear, and come to me, here, that your soul may live. And I will make with you an everlasting covenant, my steadfast, sure love for David. Behold, I made him a witness to the peoples, a leader and commander for the peoples. We're starting to talk about Jesus there. But you can see it, right? Come, buy and eat. You who have no money, come, buy and eat. The Lord's Supper is free. You don't have to buy it. When you gather together as Christians in the church on Sunday morning, and you, there's, no, there's no purchasing of Christ's body and blood. Now he purchased for you. He purchased you with his body and blood. It's the other way around, really, entirely. Um, but this feast that we have of Christ's body and blood on the Lord's Supper is for our good. We're going to see what it does here in just a moment. But before we do that, I want to double back. I said it's a twofold thing. Look at the feast, not just as the Lord's Supper, but also what the Lord's Supper itself is a foreshadowing of. The Lord's Supper foreshadows the marriage feast of the Lamb and his kingdom, which you can see in Revelation chapter 19, verse 9. And John, as he writes Revelation 19, connects it back to this for us too. There is a heavenly banquet. Jesus uses that illustration in a parable to teach that God is preparing a feast and that he has invited us all to join him at this feast. Come eat. Come buy. You who have no money. So this is the Lord's Supper, but it's also a reference to paradise. So what's it going to do for us? What does the Lord's Supper bring? What does the heavenly banquet in paradise bring? Well, we read on, verse 7 again, Where all of Holy Week happens, on this mountain, he will swallow up. Talk about a feast, right? We get to feast on Christ's body and blood. What is he feasting on? The covering, the veil, death. It's a really neat picture. 
Jesus feasting on death. He consumes it for us. He takes it into himself. He dies the death that we deserved. He's going to swallow up. He's going to eat and consume the covering that was cast again over all peoples. Everyone is plagued by sin and by death. Veil spread over all nations. I mean, verse 8. How beautiful is verse 8. He will swallow up death forever. This is the promise. Now, more than the promise because it's already been fulfilled. This is the reality of Good Friday. This is the reality of what Jesus Christ did on the cross as he took away the covering, the veil that is spread across all people. He took away from us our sin. And by his resurrection on the third day, on Easter morning, the day that we celebrate together as the church this weekend, he has swallowed up death forever. That connects us to, I believe it's 1 Corinthians 15, that death is the last enemy to be defeated. But even death itself has been swallowed up forever by Jesus. He has defeated it. And he will raise us from it on that final day. And so you can begin to see, again, both the Holy Week account here, but also paradise, right? There is no death in paradise. There is no covering in paradise. There's no veil over us in paradise. It has been swallowed up. It is gone because of what Christ did that week in Jerusalem. Now we know, as verse 8 continues, that Yahweh will wipe away tears from all faces, that, that paradise has no more sorrow. It has no more suffering. It has no more death. The reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth. Now it's, I don't want to use that word tempting. We might want to read that verse as being about our life now. The reproach of his people. The Lord Jesus himself said that as the world hated him, the world will hate us. And we're seeing that more and more in a culture that is turning away from Christianity that is giving itself over to secular ideas left and right, that there is a reproach of God's people, that there is a hatred for the things of truth from God's word. But that's not what this is talking about. I mean, it's true, that won't be there anymore. But when God here says in verse 8 that he is going to take away the reproach of his people from all the earth, it's a reference to our sin. And he has taken our sin away. What a beautiful thing it is that Christ has done for us. And so there you have verse 8 finishing, Yahweh has spoken. And thus it is. What Yahweh says goes. Uh, the illustration that we use uh, sometimes with families or children on this is to think of the umpire in a baseball game. When the runner is running to first and it's a close play at the bag as he slides in there trying, well... Uh, you don't usually slide into first. As he sprints past first trying to beat it out, the ball hits the glove, the foot hits the bag. The crowd is convinced the runner is safe, but the umpire yelled out. And so it is. I guess we could make that picture stronger, flip it around. The crowd is convinced that the runner is out. 
But the Empire yells safe, and so it is. His declaration makes it so. And so God has spoken of you, even though you were out, even though you were a sinner. He has declared it to be the opposite. He has declared that you are safe, that you are his, that you are whole and alive. And because he has said it, it is true. Just as you think of his creation, when he spoke, things happened. When he said, let there be light, there was light. When he said, let there be uh, a separation between the water from the water, suddenly you had the sky and the heaven. And all these things happened simply because he spoke and, and they listened. Creation does what God speaks. And so it will be. Verse 9 this then is what we say. Behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. We have waited for him. How long had the Old Testament church of God, the Old Testament people of Israel, waited for God to save them? Well, off and on for hundreds of years, right? But this goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden as Eve takes the fruit, as Adam takes the fruit and abandons his wife, and they eat together against the Lord's command, and they bring death into creation right away. In chapter 3, we see the Lord already promising a Savior, one who would crush the devil and defeat his, his temptations and his offspring of death that he brings upon us. We have waited for him. So the Old Testament church really then was waiting for, by the time this is written, a good 3,500 years, that he might save us. And we now, even still, we've been waiting a good 6,000 or more years that he might save us. And so as we think of Matthew chapter 1, when the angel Gabriel comes to announce to Mary and to announce to Joseph that there is a child within her that she is going to give birth and that they should name the Son Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. Jesus is the Greek. It comes from the Hebrew name Joshua, which would be pronounced Yeshua. And it means he saves. That he might save us. We have waited for him. We have waited for the Messiah, the Christ, for the baby Jesus, and then we turn and we say, this is Yahweh. We have waited for him. This babe in Bethlehem, this one that we now celebrate who is lifted up upon the cross, this one whom we now celebrate as having risen from the dead and broken the bonds of death forever, we have waited for him. This is Yahweh. Yahweh of armies, who has prepared for us a feast. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. As we look to continue then with our epistle reading, we go to 1 Corinthians chapter 15 verses 1 through 11. This is known as the resurrection chapter among many Christians because it is, well, so intimately focused on the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The Corinthian Christians had come to a point of really many of them doubting 
whether Jesus had actually risen from the grave, from the dead. And we don't get to that point in the text where Paul really refutes that. Teaching them, and he says some of the words here in the text we'll have today, like, you believed in vain is one example, but he, he very much so spells that out in the next couple of paragraphs. So if you want to see that argumentation, go ahead and read onward after you've finished listening to the podcast today. Uh, it's, again, a great chapter that shows the, the sheer value, the sheer importance of the resurrection to the Christian. If Christ has not been raised, our faith is in vain. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. And so we are not left to shame. Now, again, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 1 through 11. And this is broken up into a very short paragraph and then a longer one. So we'll do verses 1 and 2 first. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. I would remind you, brothers. How often do you need reminders? I mean, think about the the simple things in life, right? Uh, The reminder to wake up, so you set an alarm clock. And how many alarms do you set? I know for myself on Sunday morning to make sure I don't oversleep church, I usually set three alarms just to make sure they get me. Uh, Usually the second one works, and I don't need the third one, but it's there just in case. We have reminders on our phones, we have notifications popping up to remind us to do things, our calendar, uh, reminders all over the place. The notes we leave on our refrigerator so we'll see them. But how much more true is this of our faith? That we need reminders. We are constantly engaged in a battle against sin, death, and the devil, a battle that Christ has already won for us, and we need to be reminded of that daily. But we fight against temptation every day. We wrestle with doubt every day. We struggle to pray every day and to read God's word every day, and and so we need these reminders Now, we could talk about reminders. It's a great way to have a family conversation or family devotion around a text like this. How can we have regular reminders in our lives? Uh, You could sign up for email devotions from somebody like Lutheran Hour Ministries or the Lutheran Church Charities. They do those. Uh, You can get a devotional resource like Portals of Prayer that has a devotion in it every day and leave it somewhere that you go daily. If you have a solid routine that you always sit at your table in your kitchen and eat breakfast in the morning and read your newspaper, put the portals of prayer right there. Before you open your newspaper, read the portals of prayer for the day. Or read your Bible for the day. Put a Bible right there. Um, you know, wherever that spot may be that you gather, have hymns playing in your car as you go to work instead of whatever the news is on the morning radio or the the songs that you would otherwise listen to, perhaps, or a podcast, um, you know, the daily reminder of God's word that could be given and shared to you. These are just some examples, some thoughts, but most of all, the reminder, and really more than just a reminder, the actual act of the forgiveness of sins given to you by Christ himself. 
through word and sacrament. And so we just had a text on the, the feast of rich food, of well-aged wine, the Lord's Supper. We need that every time we can get it. I sin much, so I need forgiveness much. I struggle much, so I need encouragement much. And that's what the church is for. The church is in the physical building. Um, we are the, the building exists so that you have a place of promise where you know you can go to hear God's forgiveness, to receive God's forgiveness that Christ won for you on the cross. And we need that reminder as often as we can get it. And it is both a reminder and also a reality. I don't know that the alarm clock illustration really works there necessarily, but as I'm thinking about it, 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 it kind of works. The alarm goes off in the morning, and when it goes off, I'm awake. I may not want to be awake, but I'm awake. Um, I may choose to go back to sleep after I shut it up, but it woke me up. It did its job. The absolution and the Lord's Supper do their job. They forgive sins as Christ has given them to do, as Christ has promised that they would. He has given them to you for your benefit. Now, what is Paul reminding the Corinthian brothers of? He's reminding them of the faith that they have had taught to them and that they would not waver from that faith, that they would stand firm in it. And so you can see the progression here. Paul preached to them a gospel, a good news, a very specific message, and we'll get it in verse 3 and 4, I guess, and 5. Sorry, it keeps going. Paul preached the message of the gospel. They received it, so they heard it, and their hearts rejoiced. So the Holy Spirit created faith in them. In which you stand, so you've received the gospel, now you stand in that gospel. Uh, the here I stand kind of quote that's so famous of Martin Luther, although we're not sure if he actually said those words or not, but it sounds really good and it makes a perfect fitting sense. Here I stand, I can do no other, by which you are being saved. Not yourself, but the gospel. What Christ has done for you is what saves you, if you hold fast. I should have looked up that Greek word, too. Let's look that up real quick. Which Greek word is that? So this is 1 Corinthians 15, it's verse 2. And the Greek word, hold fast, in the, the verse, kataketa. Kataketa. I'm just wondering, as we think of the book of Genesis... If that's the same word used in chapter 2, verse 24, where a man will leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. Did the, the Septuagint translators pick up on that idea? They did not. They went with the Greek word to be joined to, to cleave, to adhere closely to, which is pros kalamai. So, not there. In English, you see it. Hold fast, hold fast. Um, cling, though. I, this is an easy thing to picture, right? If you've ever had children, you know how clingy they can be, and they just they latch on, and they will not let go of your leg or whatever it is that they've taken hold of, uh, the little baby taking a chunk of your hair 
is a not so pleasant one. But this is the picture then that we can use for our faith. Hold fast, cling, don't let go. Grab hold of what has been given to you, what has been shared with you, and, and remain there. Stand in that faith. Even though the tide may rise against you in this culture, even though the devil may put tempting things just beyond your reach, if you would just leave that spot where you stand, you could have this wonderful life here. And when you leave that circle, you don't remember the salvation that you had in Christ. The reminder is, is missing from your life when you have left the church. And so you can see some of these things pictured here by Paul, and then he says, unless you believed in vain. So vain, worthless vanity, um, if, it, if it was for nothing. And again, the, the Corinthian Christians here are teetering on this. They are doubting the resurrection. That's the reason for this chapter being written to them. And of course, it's a wonderful chapter for us to still have, so we're thankful Paul wrote it. Let's continue uh, with the rest of the text, verses 3 through 11. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than five hundred brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. This is the word of the Lord. So, as we think of verse 3, Paul again, going back to what he said in verse 1, the gospel I preached to you. So now he says, I delivered to you as of first importance. Note the priority. The gospel of Jesus Christ is not second or third or fourth or fifteenth. It's first. There is nothing more important in this life, in this world, than the gospel. And how we lose sight of that each and every day. Stunning. This is the thing that matters. If you lose everything, you get fired from your job, you lose your house to foreclosure, your body becomes brittle and frail, and you come to the point of death. If you still have the gospel, you still have paradise. That cannot be taken away from you. The feast of rich food, of well-aged wine, still awaits you. And that's a glorious thing. It's a beautiful thing that we have from our Lord and our Savior, from Jesus Christ. Now, this, that doesn't mean that we necessarily wish to have all that bad stuff happen to us, but, again, first importance. 
The other things don't really matter. Gets us to the very simple instructions of Jesus in the New Testament that life is about two things. Love God, love your neighbor. I don't have to have a home to love my neighbor. But if I have a home, that does give me additional ways that I can love my neighbor, right? I can bring them into my house. I can serve them dinner, showing hospitality. I can give the neighbor who's lost their home a place to live and to stay, whether it's temporarily or if we're just going to merge our households together and become a larger family. And you don't see much of that in American culture, uh, but it has been a part of cultures around the world for a very long time, um, that idea of hospitality. And that's just one example. First importance, what I also received. Now, Paul is going to list off four things that are in this reception of his. Here's the gospel that he proclaims and preaches to them. Christ died for our sins. He was buried, that's second. Third, he was raised on the third day. And fourth, in verse 5, he appeared. So, died, buried, raised, appeared. Those four words are what Paul is focusing on here. So two of them, he very specifically pairs with the idea that it's in accordance with the scriptures, and indeed it is. Jesus himself predicted it several times, and his disciples never believed him, at least not until after it had happened. And and at that, they only believed him after the resurrection had happened, and they were still puzzled by it. But it all comes together at Pentecost for them. Anyway, Christ died for our sins. What a beautiful picture. And that's Good Friday of Holy Week as you gather together with your church again. So you've celebrated the Old Testament text in a sense with Maundy Thursday. You've celebrated the epistle text here um, as we think of both Good Friday with that verse but also of the whole of it with Easter as well uh, because again, It doesn't stop with his death and his burial, which are the first two things. He died that we would be forgiven, then he was buried, and he was raised. All of that's prophesied in the Old Testament. All of it's said by Jesus himself in the New Testament, and it all comes to be. His death forgives our sins, his resurrection gives us life, and then he appeared. Paul's going to spend several verses unpacking these appearances for us. What is the purpose of noting that Jesus appeared? Now it presents to us eyewitnesses. If you don't believe, if you're doubting, if you're struggling to, to think that Christ could have possibly risen from the dead, here are some people you can go and talk to. Jewish culture at the time held that something that was testified to by two or three witnesses was to be taken as credible. This is why when they were trying Jesus on Good Friday, they were trying to find witnesses that would testify against him, and they couldn't find witnesses that agreed. That's an important detail. So Caiaphas eventually, in questioning Jesus, gets him to say that he is the Son of Man, the Son of God, who will be seated at the right hand of power, and then that's enough for them to accuse him together of blasphemy. They've all heard it, so now they have their witnesses. What more testimony do we need? It wasn't blasphemy, it was truth, but they had their witnesses. So the resurrection appearances 
the post-Easter appearances of Jesus are for the purpose of the faith of his church, that they would be able to receive this testimony, that their faith would be strengthened, and that they would go out and share that gospel, that good news. Did he need to appear? It's an interesting question. I guess in a sense, yes, he did because he promised he would. And so he had to keep his promise, right? He tells them, and we're going to cover this in the gospel account, but he tells them that after he's risen from the dead, he will appear to them in Galilee. He will go before them into Galilee and there to meet with him there. So, yeah, there, there has at least a need for some appearance because, because of something like that. Now, who does he appear to? And Paul's going to give us a list. He starts with Cephas. This is Peter, Simon Peter, um, the rock. That's an interesting pop cultural connection. Anyway, um, the actor, the former wrestler, the rock. Cephas is Aramaic for rock, whereas Petros is Greek for rock, and that's why we normally call him Peter. Um, but both names refer to the same. So he appears to Peter... Then he appears to the twelve. Then he appears to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive. Why would he say that? Again, the, the Corinthians are doubting that Jesus rose from the dead. So you have trouble believing this? He appeared to all of these people, and most of them are still living. Go ask. Hear it from the eyewitnesses yourselves that you may be strengthened in your faith, that you may believe. Now, of course, for us, we cannot do that. Um, we have the testimony of Scripture uh, and the apostles that wrote it down for us. These men did see it, and they did write it down, and we do have that. We don't get to go and ask them anymore. But we also have the words of Jesus to Thomas. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. That's our Lord speaking a blessing for us. Some have fallen asleep is a reference, the New Testament reference to death. Um, so some of those 500 brothers, by the point Paul is writing 1 Corinthians, a couple of decades later, some of them have died, but not all of them. In fact, not even the majority of them. Most of them are still alive, according to Paul. Verse 7, he appeared to James. This is James, the, the blood brother of Jesus, uh, the one born of Mary and Joseph after Jesus. Um, one of those brothers who does not believe the gospel, who doesn't believe Jesus is the Messiah until, probably until this. Right? We see the, we see the holy family, if you still want to call them that, um, in the gospels not believing. Jesus is in a house and a crowd has gathered around him and he's teaching and he's healing. He's doing all kinds of the stuff that he's come to do and his mother and his brothers show up to take him away because they think he's gone crazy. They want to get him out of there. And Jesus looks around to the crowd and he says that they are his mother and his brothers and his sisters. All those who do the will of his Father in heaven. That's James, the brother of Jesus. And so here, we now see that Jesus has appeared to him after he was crucified, after he has been raised from the dead, and then he appears to the apostles. 
again. That James, that brother, is going to go on to be the head of the church in Jerusalem for probably a couple of decades. It would be at this time. So there's another reference that they can go and ask. Verse 8, last of all, as to one untimely born. Uh, the, the Greek word there is in reference to a miscarriage. Um, a baby that comes when it's not supposed to come. It's the only time that word, to my knowledge, is used in the entirety of Scripture. Um, so it's a little hard to know what to do with it because of that. I am the least of the apostles, and we know he's referencing there because he explains it, because I persecuted the church of God. I've heard many say that, that here Paul was wishing he had never lived as his reference point. I'm not sure that I want to go that far. Because even though, yes, he persecuted the church, I mean... How many people believe in the gospel because of the work that Paul has done? I don't see Paul as someone who would want to undo that work. So, again, this miscarriage word, the one untimely born phrase, is a little hard for us to wrap our minds around exactly what it is Paul's getting at. In its context, again, we know that Paul is lessening himself. And so maybe that applies to a lowering of, a humbling of himself. That he doesn't deserve this. He doesn't deserve to be here because he knew how evil he was. He's the least. He's not worthy to be called this because he did these terrible things. And the New Testament even recorded some of those things. We can see it in the book of Acts at the end of chapter 7 is where he first appears. And he appears because they're stoning Stephen to death and they all lay their cloaks at Paul's feet as essentially the witness to the event. And we learn that he approved of this as they killed Stephen, the first Christian martyr of the church. And then in verse, uh, sorry, chapter 8, we see him persecuting the church. And, and the church is scattered because of Paul's great persecution that he's bringing as he goes from house to house seeking Christians that he may arrest them and bring them before the council. Paul knows the wickedness that he's committed. And in a way, we can relate to this. We know the depths of our own sin. I don't know the depths of your sin, but I know mine. You don't know the depths of my sin, but you know yours. We know how bad we are. We know the, the, the wretched things that we've said, the, the wicked things that we've thought and not actually carried through. Praise God for that, but it was still sin to think it. We know how bad we are. And so we can, we can relate to what Paul is thinking here, even if we haven't persecuted the church in the way he's describing of himself. We all deserve death. None of us deserve life. But yet that is the greatness of God's gift. And it's just that. It's a gift. We are all unworthy, but Christ has given it to us anyway. He has declared that we are worthy. And again, it's not because of what we've done, but because of what he has done. How do you know your worth? 
God himself was willing to die for you. That says something. That gives you worth in this world and in this life. Even if the rest of the world would despise you, Christ is for you. Verse 10, I am what I am. A broken sinner, forgiven, redeemed, baptized, saved, sent. You are these things by the grace of God. His grace toward us not in vain. Paul can certainly say that, right? It's a twofold reference again. It refers to the, the faith that Paul has. God's grace towards him was not in vain. Paul is saved. But it's also beyond that, it refers to the salvation um, that has found its way to so many new churches in, in the course of Paul's missionary journeys throughout Galatia and Asia and Mysia and Macedonia and and Achaia as he travels again and again and again and he plants churches and he goes and he visits those churches and he encourages them again and again. The grace given to Paul multiplied. Just like the fruit in the parable as Jesus talks about, which parable is that? The parable of the sower maybe Matthew 13, uh, where Jesus says that the, the seed that fell on good soil, it grew, it produced 30-fold, a 60-fold, a 100-fold. It would be incredible if we could all produce 30-fold. Imagine if every Christian shared the gospel with 30 people. What impact that would have on this world. Paul did significantly more than that, and we can rejoice at that as the church. Um, you know, we don't have to ask this question really, but where would the church be otherwise? This is how the Lord chose to work. Many of us are Christians today as offshoots of churches, if we were to go back historically far enough, that Paul planted. Because those Christians also shared the gospel, and then the Christians they shared the gospel with shared the gospel, and so forth. It makes its way down through the generations, through the families, through the churches. Again, Paul working harder um, in verse 10 there than the rest of the apostles. We might see that as a brag, um, but it's a boast in the Lord. As he says, it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Paul endured much for the sake of sharing the gospel. As he went on those missionary journeys, he was chased out of towns. He was stoned, they thought to death, but he survived. Shipwrecked a couple of times. I mean, the things that happened to him, the diligence of going and traveling to share the gospel, it's a thing we thank God for. We don't want to lift Paul up as being worthy of our worship. No one is but God himself. But we can thank God for the gift of the apostle. Perhaps the, the greatest evangelist the church has known. Because, verse 11, 
Whether it was I or they, it doesn't matter who preached this good news to you. We preached it to you and you believed it. Stand firm, hold fast, cling to that faith, and you will live, not just now, but forevermore. Now, our gospel reading today is from Mark chapter 16. It's verses 1 through 8, probably the shortest of the gospel accounts when it comes to the resurrection details as we jump in. I mean, it's just one paragraph here. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome brought, bought spices so that they might go and anoint him. Very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. And they were saying to one another, Who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe. And they were alarmed. And he said to them, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. And arguably, sorry, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Arguably, that's where Mark's gospel ends. You'll have that footnote in your Bible after verse 8 that suggests to you that Verses 9 through 20, while included in some manuscripts, were not included in many manuscripts, including some of the earliest, the oldest of the, of the manuscripts that we have of Mark. In fact, we have two additional endings uh, that get tacked on in various manuscripts in addition to the one that you're used to. Um, so it is possible that Mark ended his gospel writing here, which would be a, a unique ending, uh, kind of a cliffhanger of an ending. Uh, and if there's a purpose for it, if that is what Mark did, I think it pairs well with the 1 Corinthians text. As Paul mentions the brothers who have seen the risen Christ for the very purpose that the Corinthians can go and ask. So Mark ends his gospel here for the very purpose that those who are reading it, likely the Romans, would want to ask the Christians the rest of the story. It's a neat Neat idea. So we talk about it this way sometimes too within the church today, that you don't just want to hand somebody a Bible. You have the book of Acts, the, the Philippian Philip with the Ethiopian eunuch. The eunuch Philip asks the eunuch if he understands what he's reading, and the eunuch's response is, How can I unless someone explains it to me? So when we hand someone a Bible, we also have to be there for them, or at the very least connect them to somebody who can be there for them. That as they read it, they also have someone there that can share it with them, more fully pointing them to Jesus. And so it would be with this, go ask the Christians, and by doing so, they're immersed into the church. They have the eyewitnesses sharing with them the greatness of the gospel. For those of you concerned about the 
authority of Scripture, the inerrancy of Scripture. Hearing that verses 9 through 20, as you look at your Bible, may surprise you, um, that they may not have been written by Mark. And, and for this, I'm going to point you to the famous atheist scholar, Bart Ehrman, who made his living on a book called Misquoting Jesus. It really put him on the map. Bart Ehrman was a biblical scholar who didn't believe. Um, a student of, oh, was it Bruce Metzger? Anyway, he writes this book, claims that the New Testament is filled, just the New Testament, filled with 300,000 heirs. We're safe we're comfortable today admitting it's more than 400,000 heirs because we've found new manuscripts since he wrote Misquoting Jesus. Um, not new, but we have found additional manuscripts with the work of archaeology, and that's a benefit. Anyway, um, Ehrman in that book builds up this case that has a lot of people convinced that the Bible can't be trusted, that it's not really what the, the original people wrote, and that it's just a sham, but then in the appendix, he goes on to admit, because nobody reads an appendix, he goes on to admit that 98.5% of the words of the New Testament we can know for certain are the original words written down by the apostles. The only words that we cannot know for certain from the manuscript evidence that we have available to us, Mark chapter 16, verses 9 through 20, and I'm blanking on the exact versification uh, the other one is John, and it starts at the end of chapter 7, and it's the beginning of chapter 8. The account of the woman caught in adultery, uh, where Jesus says, Let him who is without sin throw the first stone. That account shows up not just there, um, but sometimes it doesn't show up there, and it shows up elsewhere in John's gospel, and sometimes it even shows up in Luke's gospel instead. Um, so those are the two chunks, and they're small chunks, of the New Testament that we just aren't sure if they're original to Mark and to John. But everything else we have full certainty of. So I, I, I just say that in case uh, you got rattled by what I said earlier. Um, we truly believe that this is the word of God and it is possible that Mark wanted to end his gospel, that the Holy Spirit wanted to end this gospel at verse 8, and that as we move forward in history, um, the church didn't want to leave it as a cliffhanger, so they added an appendix. They added a summary at the end just to let people know what happened afterwards. Um, that's, that's probably what happened. Anyway, on with Mark chapter 16, focusing on the resurrection. Verse 1. Mary Magdalene, another Mary, mother of James, who was mentioned a couple of chapters before in Mark's, well, actually 15, chapter 15, verse 40, and Salome. So these three women go to the tomb with spices. They bought spices. Now, Jesus is crucified on Friday morning at 9 a.m., and he's dead by 3 in the afternoon, which only leaves because the Sabbath begins when the sun sets on Friday. So that's 6 p.m. It only leaves a couple of hours there, a few hours, for that body to be taken down from the cross and buried. And that simply was not enough time for them to perform a regular, customary Jewish funeral, burial of Jesus. So they wrapped him, they laid him in a tomb. These three ladies, early on Sunday morning, very early, they, they have to go 
to the market to buy spices. So they find somebody in the market whose stall is already open. And then they buy those spices and they head out to the tomb. What are they expecting? Oftentimes we view these women as being faithful with this act, but they're not. They have lumped themselves in with the rest of the disciples. Nobody believed Jesus was going to rise from the dead. They're not going there to celebrate that he's alive and thinking that maybe he's a little stinky because he was dead for a few days, but now he's alive and he needs a shower. They're going there because they believe his body is decaying and they need to prepare his body for his burial. Even though as, a, as their Messiah, he did not fulfill the words that they thought he was going to fulfill for them. He did fulfill what he said he was going to, but not what they thought. They were expecting an earthly king, and he was not that. He was never going to be that. So even though they have that disappointment that what they wanted did not turn to be, they still loved this man. He was still their brother, their friend, their family, and they are going to give him a proper burial. That's the plan. Men and women alike, the disciples just don't get it. So they head to the tomb. Verse 3. As they're going, they're discussing about the tomb. They know the stone is there, and it's like a, a forgotten detail. Whoops. Uh, how are we going to move the stone this morning? I forget which gospel account it is. I feel like I've read somewhere that Joseph of Arimathea could move that stone by himself. Um, so, a strong man, I guess. Uh, these ladies did not believe they could do it, and so they're wondering who's going to move it. But when they get there, verse 4, it's already rolled away. It's already gone. And as they go into that tomb, they see a young man sitting there, in a white robe. That's a cue from scripture, a clue for you that you should think angel here. The other clue is that they were alarmed, and the very first thing he has to say to them is, do not be alarmed. Also translatable, afraid. Angels almost always say those words when they first appear to people in scripture which should probably tell us something about their appearance. It's not the hallmarky kind of appearance that we, we get used to seeing in, in pop culture references to angels. These beings are, are incredibly strong, and they're holy, and that holiness alone can create fear, and rightly so. Although... Our fear is to be of God alone, not even of his angels, though they are his army, they're his messengers, his warriors. Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane telling Peter that he could summon six, no, twelve? Twelve legions of angels if he had wanted to. A legion is six thousand, so seventy-two thousand angels to fight for him. Who wouldn't be terrified? What man would not be terrified of a 72,000 angel army coming against him? Nonetheless, we are to fear God alone. 
And if we fear God, we don't need to fear the angels because they are on our side. They fight for us, not against us. Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth who was crucified. Right? Clarification, details. It's not the wrong tomb, which has been suggested. Oddly. Let's cover that for just a second. One of the arguments that Jesus did not rise from the dead that we hear in our culture today that is just absurdity is that they went to the wrong tomb. And so Jesus never really rose. They just went to the wrong place. Do you really think the Romans and the Jews both would have allowed them to get away with that? Hey, Mary... Peter, John, you went to the wrong tomb. He's buried over here. That one just has zero credibility. Anyway. Angel clarifies, this is the tomb of Jesus. It's, the, it's where they're looking for him. This is where he's been laid after his death on the cross. But he has risen. He is not here. I've got those words bracketed here in my text because it's just, that's the key phrase in the whole passage. He has risen. He is not here. He has risen is of great importance because it means death could not hold him, which means he is who he said he is. He is the Son of God. He is the Savior of the world. And because death could not hold him, this is Paul's argument in 1 Corinthians 15, it cannot hold you. And that is beautiful. That is a great promise and reality that we have in Christ. It's also great that he's not here. Jesus had more work to be done. And so he was going about and doing it. This kind of language gives the church their early greeting that they used with one another. Christ is risen. I'm going to break Lenten tradition here. He is risen indeed. Hallelujah. And those are words that Christians would speak to one another as a greeting. So, you know, you see each other in the marketplace. Christ is risen. He is risen indeed, brother. Imagine greeting each other that way today. How neat would that be? I guess for church tradition's sake, you'll have to wait until Sunday to greet one another that way. But you know what I mean. We've buried the hallelujah until we come out of the season of Lent in just a few days. Tell his disciples and Peter, Peter highlighted here, that he's going before you to Galilee. And this is what Jesus said, so just as he told you, this is what Jesus said back in chapter 14, verse 28, that after he had risen which they seemed to miss every time he prophesied that to them. After he had risen, he would go before them into Galilee, and that they would find him there. So the angel reminds them, <laughs> see, connection to 1 Corinthians 15, 1. The angel reminds them of this promise, and they are to go to see Jesus in Galilee. The women fled from the tomb. They were trembling. They were astonished. I mean, just imagine the emotion that they would have had at the time. Again, the guy they thought was going to be their earthly king and set up this great kingdom for them, gone, dead, crucified by the Romans. And yet, here they are a couple of days later learning from 
an angel, no less, that he's no longer dead, that he's risen from the dead. So much disappointment, so much doubt, so much concern, now mixed with so much joy, so much amazement. It's easy to understand why the disciples and why these women would have been, well, pretty discombobulated on Easter, uh, just not knowing what to do next. And so the direction is there. Go tell his disciples. So there's the direction for the women. And the direction for the disciples is to go to Galilee and find Jesus there. So they are temporarily baffled. They said nothing to anyone for they were afraid. But eventually the women would tell. And they would tell everyone the good news that they have seen, that they are eyewitnesses of the resurrection of Jesus. Jesus.